Gorbachev to tear down this. The American people, I think, is good people. They are. They have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies. Welcome back to the Cold War episode 119, Ray. Hello. Uh, we're talking about Red Scares. We're talking about America in the, the 30s and uh, the genesis of the major Red Scares. And last time we were talking about how even the Roosevelts yeah. and the Secretary of Navy and the Secretary of War were on Hoover's <laughs> subversive list. <laughs> And uh, in 1940, Eleanor Roosevelt uh, was accused in the Dyes Committee of being a communist fifth columnar, yeah. supporter of the communist fifth column. Um, so, uh, yeah. I was going to say, do you imagine, I mean, I'm sure FDR knew about this, about his name. You know, obviously he sees his name on his list, his wife's name on the list. He's like... Yeah, whatever. It just goes about his business. I mean, this guy is rich. He's the president in 1940. He's going to be elected for the third time. I just imagine that he probably couldn't, and he couldn't walk, he couldn't care less about being on a list. I mean, if there's anybody that's above, not suspicion, but the law at this point, I I would think it would be FDR 1939-1940. Uh, yeah, no, I think he was he was kind of pissed and insulted, but I think he and Eleanor just let it go. Didn't let it get yeah. in there. Let it, didn't get let it, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he thought it was ridiculous and insulting. And uh, but again, here's the fascinating thing about Roosevelt mm-hmm. is on one hand he was publicly criticizing the Dyes Committee itself as being un-American. <laughs> But then later on, he starts telling Hoover, yeah, make a list. Yeah. Make a list of subversive elements. And, and we're going to get into that in, uh, I think, this episode in more detail. Gotcha. Now, uh, obviously, the, what we've been talking about over the last few episodes is that the Red Scares in the United States were driven to a large extent by the big industrialists, by the capitalists, the manufacturers, the media mm-hmm. Because they perceived the Roosevelt New Deal and the rising interest generally across the country in alternatives to laissez-faire capitalism right. as being a threat to their interests. And I, I, in this episode, I want to talk about some of the different ways that they tackled that outside of mm-hmm. accusing people in things like the Dyes Committee of being communists. Mm-hmm. They also started to launch major propaganda campaigns uh, associating laissez-faire capitalism with Americanism Mm. and everything else as being associated with evil commies and uh, atheism, which we'll get to because religion was a big part of this. In 1939, the Federal Trade Commission in the United States, filed a complaint against the Hearst Corporation and their magazine Good Housekeeping. Mm. They called it misleading and deceptive because it was issuing guarantees, including its seal of approval and exaggerated and false claims in its advertisements. The FTC claimed that the magazine's use of Good Housekeeping seals of approval 
were calculated to mislead and deceive. So basically, they would, uh, if you were a manufacturer mm-hmm. and you were trying to advertise in good housekeeping, if you paid enough money, they would give your product the seal of approval. <laughs> right. Product could be complete shit. <laughs> But they were suggesting that, you know, it had passed some sort of test to make sure that it was actually a good product when all that was happening is you were just paying them a a premium. Money changed hands. Now, in the mid-'70s, I remember Good House Keeping Magazine, and I remember – the 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 seal of approval it was like a like a, almost like the the top part of a ribbon gold with a, like a little sun thing i remember that and my grandmother would swear by that she would buy like just and that's obviously the entire point is that the the american people put their absolute faith faith and trust in this no questions this is good enough for me i've got to have this i remember that very vividly yeah i think it's still around mm-hmm. um it's uh, now they call it the good housekeeping seal. Uh, it's the it's just a stamp of approval, right? Um, uh, uh, yeah, and and it, it sort of I think it changed over time. I think gradually they started to put a little bit more uh, behind it, but originally it was just paid money for it, which isn't uncommon. I have to say, yeah. you know, when I was in the, when I was in the cigar business. We used to get um, Cigar Aficionado and magazines like that, and they rate the best cigars. Right. And um, one of the guys I used to work with, uh, Nick Podomo, who owns Podomo Cigars, he's uh, based out of Miami, uh, red, red-blooded American, yeah. Cuban-American, um, mm-hmm. big Republican, probably loves Trump. <laughs> Used to love watching Fox News, God. but he uh, he used to say that the cigars that got rated the highest in Cigar Aficionado were those cigar brands that paid oh. the most money for advertising in the magazine. Right. That was his take on it, and he was a full on you know Republican capitalist, balls to the wall <laughs> Trump lover. Money talks and bullshit walks. Yeah, yeah, so it's that's it's not unusual, right? Um, so anyway, the FTC in 1939 went after good housekeeping for this in the Hearst Corporation. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that would happen is if a manufacturer had the seal of approval in good housekeeping, but then they cancelled their advertising spend, they lost the seal of approval. Oh, shit. Uh, now, the FTC apparently was acting in response to pressure brought by retailers and manufacturers mm-hmm. Not, not by communists. Uh, it was by manufacturers that were complaining about good housekeeping. Um, but the Hearst Press and the Dyes Committee accused this of being uh, a communist ploy to damage the reputation of good American capitalists. Wow. The company, the Hearst company, launched an advertising blitz. Right. Sent a, sent a telegram out to two thousand businessmen and a thousand publishers and editors on the day that the FTC was citing good housekeeping, mm-hmm. and warned of a communist-dominated consumer movement <laughs> that must now be publicly exposed. <laughs> the word communist is in there. That's all you need. 
when the FTC hearings opened that month, the Dyes Committee threatened to investigate communist influence in consumer groups and called on the business leadership of America to purge racketeers who were able to sway the emotions of an uninformed people and teach them the damnable doctrines of socialism and communism. Wow, someone's got way too much time on their hands. Or maybe I'm just making too light of it. <laughs> well, this is this was the tactic. So yeah. this is where you, all of a sudden these this large corporate media outlet mm-hmm. who was being chastened, criticized by the FTC for its business practices, launched a proper campaign, proper propaganda. I missed out the gander. <laughs> you can't miss Don't, the gander. You need that. A proper a propaganda campaign <laughs> right. associating criticism of its practices oh, with communism. Right. Oh, it's the commies that are criticizing capitalism. So- so the Hearst Corporation is being accused of something, let's be honest, it's probably doing. They have a ton of money. They need to fight back as opposed to changing their ways, because why would you do that? That costs more money. They hire Barry and Stan, and Barry and Stan's go-to is, look, you've got to accuse anybody accusing you of something, of being communist. That's going to be everybody's Achilles heel, because there is no way, really, to prove that you're not a communist, and hopefully that will bring down your accusers. Yeah, but at the time, I think being accused of being a socialist and a communist wasn't mm-hmm. the death knell that it became to be. Gotcha. It, they had to they had to engineer that uh, because I mean, there's nothing in the American Constitution that says you can't be a socialist or a communist. There's nothing in American law, certainly at the time, that said you couldn't be a socialist or a communist. But- That's true. However, and even though this is 1939 and you've got the new deal that's been going on and and things are slowly, painfully starting to turn around in the American economy, you you still got for some people, I guess you could, who could point to the 1917 Russian Revolution, the fighting, the Civil War. So, no, I think you're absolutely right that it's technically not illegal, but there might be, and I guess the Hearst Corporation is hoping for this, still negative connotations because it's un-American. You're trying to do something. You're doing something different. You're not like, you know, capitalist. You're not individualistic. You're not a real American. But I see your point. Well, of course, at this, yeah. at this juncture to uh, what, what, what was the date of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact? Can you remember? August 1939. August. Mm-hmm. So after that, then, the communists had a, yes. had a bad yes. rest. Yeah. They had a, because people were associating them with being uh, in league right. with the Nazis. Yes. So there were, and then of course, a couple of years later, after the um, Operation um, Barbarossa, they they sort of gradually became good, the good guys right. again in the minds of lots of Americans, Jeez. the allies. Right. But for a couple of years, yeah, they're the bad guys. Barbarossa was forty one, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. June. Is that yeah. right? June, right. So for two years there, basically, the, 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 the associated, association right. with communists was uh, probably a bad thing. Um, now, uh, along with the sort of communist witch hunts, another tactic that the industrialists were using in this period was the newly invented idea of public relations. Ooh. 
I like that. Which which was a fancy name for corporate propaganda. <laughs> I've I, we've touched on this briefly in shows gone by, but I want to. Uh, read this bit again. The founder of modern propaganda, Edward Bernays, mm. nephew of Sigmund Freud, right. uh, in the opening of his classic 1928 book, Propaganda. Mm. So this is only 10 years earlier he had written the foundational book about public relations. Um, right. He wrote this. The conscious... An intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government which is the true ruling power of our country. We are governed. Our minds are molded. Our tastes formed. Our ideas suggested largely by men we have never heard of. This is a logical result of the way in which our democratic society is organised. Clearly, it is the intelligent minorities which need to make use of propaganda continuously and systematically. In the active proselytising minorities in whom selfish interests and public interests coincide lie the progress and development of America. Only through the active energy of the intelligent few can the public at large become aware of and act upon new ideas. Oh, God. That's madman with a big giant penis. Just balls to the wall. Mad, mad, mad men. men. Sorry, mean? yes, yes, yes. TV shows? Yes. Yeah. Not the, not the Mad King of no. Westeros or the Mad Queen of Westeros, which I know you're probably not up to no. date with, but uh, the Mad Man. I, yeah. I have to ask. I mean, in the late 80s, I took a college marketing class, and, it, and one of the first things we learned was that, and I can't remember who said this, but marketing or advertising is something, is the truth well told. As in, yeah, you're not exactly being honest, but you're taking what you can and you're really running with that. How is that not illegal? How look? We're going to lie. We're going to twist. We're going to spin. We're going to manipulate you. We're going to control you. We're going to tell you what to like, what you don't like, what you eat, what you wear, what you think, how you feel. We're going to manipulate you. And and I get that it's a science. And I get that people get you know there's there's entire companies and there's an industry formed around that. But how is it allowed to be? tolerated how is it illegal and maybe i'm being kind of naive but it just seems like you shouldn't be allowed to, to spend tons of money manipulating the masses for your own gain even if it's hard even if it's harmful for the masses like the tobacco industry i just find all that fascinating well you know gradually regulations were put in place over time to try mm -hmm. and prevent marketers from lying but right. Uh, you know, I guess you can you can tell the truth, uh, or you can lie in your marketing and your propaganda and your PR. Mm -hmm. And industrialists uh, would, would want no restrictions on that. Right? You know, they they want to be able to lie with impunity, and it's up to our governments to put legislation into place to to penalise. Uh, industrialists from doing that, mm -hmm. and that's been a backwards and a back and fro debate that's been going on for a century. Sure. 
Um, Bernays, by the way, went on and wrote another book called Public Relations in 1945. Then he wrote a book called The Engineering of Consent. Um, but he is m- most famous for a couple of things. Uh, working for tobacco mm-hmm. in, the li- in the late 20s, he uh, pulled a stunt where he basically got women to march, I think it was like the Macy's Parade or something like that, holding big cigarettes as torches, and they were called God. their torches of freedom. Because women weren't supposed to smoke, and the tobacco companies, as the American tobacco company, I think, uh, wanted yeah. to... Um, uh, whose head office you and I have been to, yeah. by the way... Uh, Hung out. In, uh, where was that? Um, um, Carolina? North, North Carolina. Carolina. Raleigh? Was it yeah, where Raleigh? Was no, no, Durham. No. Durham. 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 Yeah. Not only have we been there, we've been in the apartment yeah. of the CEO of American Tibet. Hang it. Shot my documentary yeah, there. Sat in his leather chair. Uh, nice. Nice apartment. Yeah. A nice place. I really liked uh, our visit to Durham. It was fucking cold. and <laughs> under 20 feet of snow, but it was... <laughs> It was nice. I, I really enjoyed it. I want to go back. Yeah. Um, yeah, so he, so women weren't supposed to smoke. There was this sort of social taboo on women smoking. And uh, Bernays was hired by the American Tobacco Company to uh, figure out a campaign. Yeah. And so he got, he got the women. Oh, sorry, it was the 1929 Easter Sunday parade oh, in New York. Blasphemy. Um, had women walking down smoking, <laughs> and it was called their Torches of Freedom. Oh, and God. Uh, that's you know, brilliant. And actresses, right? So uh, he wrote uh, a, a, a sort of a campaign strategy that says um, because it should appear as news with no division of the publicity, actresses should be definitely out. On the other hand, if young women who stand for feminism, someone from the Women's Party, say, could be secured, the fact that the movement would be advertised too would not be bad. While they should be good-looking, they should not be too modelly. Three for each church covered should be sufficient. Of course, they are not to smoke simply as they come down the church steps. They are to join in the Easter parade, puffing away. God. So... Yeah, he basically organised this big march of women smoking <laughs> and that really, it was a huge bump in uh, tobacco revenues and then yeah. when women were allowed to smoke. And they would get actresses and models to smoke in public on camera, pay them to do that, popularise the idea that it made you skinnier. Right. That's when it started to become fashionable for women to be thin. Ah. was when they associated, uh, well, thin is in right. and smoking makes you thin, Boom. so you got to smoke. There you go. Yeah. And then he's also famous after that in 1954, he was working for the United Fruit Company to promote uh, banana sales <laughs> within the United States. He had women going around and eating bananas? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes, it makes you skinny, he said. Um, makes me horny. Sorry. Yeah, Sorry. and... And he uh, helped with their campaign to associate the Guatemalan government with communists and then the the overthrow of the Guatemalan government that was uh, sponsored by the United States. Uh, He he ran a lot of the uh, public relations uh, coverage of that as being a huge success for the CIA, who he worked for later on. So anyway... Back to propaganda uh, and and corporate use. So propaganda, public relations was still a relatively new thing mm-hmm. 
in the 30s and the 40s, or big business had, hadn't really invested a lot of money in PR before that because they hadn't had to. Yeah. They could do whatever the fuck they wanted. <laughs> and all of a sudden, <laughs> all of a sudden, you know, they, they, they are getting pressure from the New Deal. Right. Uh, to curb their practices, so they start investing heavily in PR to fight a propaganda war. Now, one organisation I wanted to talk about with regard to fighting the New Deal was the National Association of Manufacturers, NAM, (laughs) N-A-M, NAM. So their, their reputation, the manufacturing industry's reputation, had um, been destroyed yeah. by the the depression, the crash in the depression, and they'd been blamed. Yeah, uh, rightly you know, so. The depression. Yeah. So, so they uh, decided they had to change their image, and uh, they they uh, in 1934 a new generation of industrialists took over mm-hmm. the NAM. And they promised that they would serve the purposes of business salvation. I, I think you... The public does not understand... I'm sorry. I, th- I think you meant to say they were going to improve their image by improving their practices and being more honest and fair and sharing their wealth more with the workers, not just their image. I think you got that mixed up. Oh, you've obviously <laughs> been reading Edward Bernays. That's great. Good to see the public does not understand industry, according oh. to one of these industrialists, because industry has made no effort to tell its story. To show the people of this country that our high living standards have risen almost altogether from the civilization which industrial activity has set up. Well, there's their high standard of living, and then there's the not so high standard of living of those who work for them. But I, we're going to gloss right over that, right? So they're finally going to tell their story in the 1930s. They're going to focus on the gospel of free enterprise. And the word gospel here is important because it does become um, take on this religious connotations. So like you were saying, they get a full-time director for public relations. And just to give you an idea, in 1934, they only spent $36,000, which, let's be honest, is a lot of money back in, in 1934. However, three years later, they're spending almost $800,000. So they are literally fighting back tooth and nail to try to clean up their name. They're not trying to do any better or be any more fair with all the profits, but they're trying to clean up their image that FDR and the New Deal and their own actions have tarnished. Uh, more to the point, that $800,000 that they spent on public relations in 1937 was mm-hmm. more than half of their total income for that year. Damn! For the NAM. So they're spending more than half of their entire budget they were spending on PR. Is that an indication of how much they were either hated or loathed by the American people? Because that's impressive. Yeah, well, I just they, they figured it Changing the perception of manufacturers was uh, um, their their most important job. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, it went from nothing to (laughs) their number one job. Right. So Nam started paying to have positive stories about the values of free enterprise. Mm. Included in films, radio programs, 
advertisements, direct mail. They created a speakers bureau to go out and talk about it. Uh, they had a press service that would uh, write editorials and news stories, which would then be distributed to seven and a half thousand local newspapers around the country. Uh, they were just doing everything that they could right. to sell the public on the values of American free enterprise. So, bef- but well, I'm sorry. Before you go on, so help me wrap my head around this. They're trying to stress. They're trying to re-educate the American populace or, or lie to the American people, whatever you want to call it, about free enterprise, about individualism, about, look, if I own a business, and I'm asking you this, if I own a business and I'm rich, it's because I worked hard, I, I've i earned this, this is mine, This it's right and it's just and it's noble that I have more than you because I've worked harder than you. This is what free enterprise is about. I took the risk. I get the rewards. If you're just a worker, that's your problem. If, but I'm the owner of this and I deserve it. Is that is that kind of the essence of what we're supposed to believe or what they're supposed to believe free enterprise in America is? Well, I think that's part of their mm-hmm. messaging. But I think the other part of it is also... No, listen, it's only because of uh, our free enterprise system that we've got it as good as we do. Ah. Uh, you know, the, again, it's this idea that everything that's good about America is because of free enterprise. <laughs> gotcha. Um, I've, I've got some examples of it here. Um, outdoor advertising. There's, there's, a, there's a good archive of this stuff up at um, a site called Hagley.org. Um, Mm -hmm. here's some uh, billboards that they had up. Right. Um, uh, 45,000 billboards they had around the country in uh, 1937. Um, You prosper when factories prosper. Mm. It's a a picture of a happy family. Um, with uh, bags of groceries and a, and a grocer wearing a white uh, apron walking right. out to their brand new car. You prosper, and a lot of people w- walking into a factory as well. Right. You prosper when factories prosper. Good times for industry mean good times for you. Mm. It's a picture of a family having a happy picnic um, with an insert of people working in a factory. Right. What is good for industry is good for you. Uh, again, happy family sitting around the radio at home whilst other people are inside walking in. There's never photos of or paintings. These are they're not even photos. Paintings of people working inside of dirty factories. Right. It's always people with happy, smiling faces and clean clothes walking towards a bright, shiny-looking factory. Right. Um, <laughs> happily marching off. Perception. Um, yeah. Uh, here's another one. Uh, it's a picture of a man walking down a road through a field. There's a, uh, there's a crossroads. One way is a swastika and the hammer and sickle oh uh, gov- with government investment written on mm-hmm. it. The other way is jobs, freedom, <laughs> opportunity, and private investment. <laughs> and it says the American way is to the right. Oh, nice one. We're not going to pay you shit, so you, but yeah. We don't want the government to invest in anything. Right. 
which was a euphemism for the New Deal. Uh. They're associating the New Deal with totalitarianism and private enterprises, jobs, freedom, and opportunity. Well, so, yeah, yeah a lot of this kind of stuff uh, was being pushed around uh, in the 30s and 40s and really a, a massive amount of money. This is just the National Association of Manufacturers. There are other private organizations right. and associations doing this as well, just driving into the American consciousness the idea that America was all about free enterprise mm. and anything that wasn't anything that tried to regulate it was going to lead to totalitarianism. I I just have to ask, all that's well and good, but this is 1934, you know, at least through 1937, the height of the uh, the Great Depression. Things are really really tough for people. You can have all the billboards you want, the press service, the radio, whatever, but people can see what's in front of them. Like when Trump says, don't don't believe what you see, believe me, you know, we're going to turn this around and just give me some more time, that kind of thing. I mean, this is a hell of a, this is a hell of a thing to undertake. And I understand that they have to do it because they're suffering, their, their image is tarnished severely. So I understand that, but that's a hell of a thing to get the people to ignore the bread lines, the, the lack of employment, savings lost, uh, kids can't go to college or whatever, because literally the economy is decimated. That's a hell of a, that's a hell of a spin to try to, uh, to get the people to see what you want them to see versus what's, what the reality is right in front of them. But I guess that's the job of marketers, right? That's the job of propaganda. Propaganda, that's yeah. exactly yeah. what you do is you uh, build a message that will try and get people to think the way you want them to think. Mm. This was a, it was a, a poster from 1939 that I've got out of this digital archive. Mm-hmm. Speaking before industrial leaders and Army and Navy officers recently gathered to preview the motion picture short subject Defense for America... Walter D. Fuller, president of the National Association of Manufacturers, said, National security demands that the public be kept informed on the amazing progress of American industry's defense output. Yet at the same time, it must be cautioned against delay of any kind. Mm. Although much of the impossible has been accomplished, (laughs) we must be made to realize that a tremendous job lies before every one of us. Whether we serve in overalls or in uniform, whether we serve in machine or machine gun, whether we serve in office, factory, Mm. camp, or battleship. Mr. Fuller went on to explain how the film Defense for America aims to accomplish this important informational service. Okay. Um... So they were making films about how uh, working in factories was going to defend America, get you ready for war, etc., etc. Wow. Leaning on thick. Defense for America makes clear that the freedom, energy, and ingenuity which have made us a great manufacturing nation are the same forces that can and will keep us free. The film shows an amazing adaptability in industry and on the part of American workers. Etc. 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 Right. So, a um, lot of lot of money being spent, and I've got other evidences of you know there's just posters here right. and all sorts of ads that they took out. It's quite fascinating. So this is what uh, this is one of the things that uh, Nam was doing. They were going to invest a shit ton of money <laughs> and energy in promoting free enterprise to Americans, but yeah. it backfired. Oh, uh, one of obs- 
One observer from the time noted throughout the 30s, enough of the corporate campaign was marred by extremist overt attacks on the unions and the New Deal that it was easy for critics to dismiss the entire effort as mere propaganda. Oh, good money wasted. Sorry. Right, but no, so they had to get smarter oh, at it. Oh, gotcha. Okay. So when when you study the use of propaganda, uh, corporate propaganda in the United States uh, in the 20th century, and mm-hmm. there's plenty of books you can read on this, um, Chomsky and Herman, Manufacturing Consent, which is you know based on Edward Bernays and, and Walter Lippmann's uh Phrasing engineering of consent of the people or the manufacturing of the consent of the people, as Walter Lippmann right. put it. He's the other great f- considered. Walter Lippmann and Edward Bernays are considered the fathers of public relations. Wow. Um, you know, they, they got cleverer at it. Right. Um, and I've just been reading one of Michael Parenti's books on this again recently. Um, I think it's his book is called Contrary Opinions. It's a very good read, but mm-hmm. um, you know he talks about actually. And I'll, I'll tell you, I'll read you this. I don't have this in my notes, so bear with me a second while I dig this up. Mm-hmm. So I, I, this article's from the this is from the uh, the Guardian uh, in Australia from the tenth of May two thousand and nineteen. A News Corp journalist has gone on the record with critical remarks about his own paper, The Australian, God. which is the name of Rupert Murdoch's biggest newspaper in Australia. Um, saying the craziness has been dialed up in recent months. The paper's social affairs writer, Rick Morton, told journalism students at the University of Technology in Sydney that senior writers know what the editorial line is and Mm. write stories to fit. Asked whether the Murdoch paper's journalists were uncomfortable with the Australian barracking for the coalition in the election, Morton said they were more uncomfortable, certainly now, than at any time I've been there in the past seven years. There is a real mood that something has gone wrong, he said in a podcast posted online by UTS. Wow. But here's the key part I wanted to read. He said editors didn't give explicit instructions about what you can and can't write, Mm -hmm. but senior writers wrote within accepted parameters or found stories that were so good the paper had to write them despite their slant. We kind of know what the editorial line is at the paper, he said. The people at the top know what it is, and there are key staff who are old enough and ugly enough to deal with the awful truth that occasionally there is a line that will come out of conference news conference where they sit down and talk about what stories are they're going to write this year. It's not always a Murdoch line. It's just that Murdoch hires editors who are very much like him. (laughs) So now this is is something that Chomsky has been saying and Parenti and guys like that have been saying for decades and all the journalists and editors I've ever known, including my ex-wife who was a journalist, would deny this to oh, the yeah. cows come home. They, they have to. The the stand, and they believe it. That's the thing. And I talk about yeah. this in my psychopath book. They believe that there is no slant that because they say they're never told you can't write this or you can't write that. And if journalists were told that, they would all storm out, being told what's right. But what happens is. Okay, for a start, if you're a journalist writing for a paper like this, and all all papers have their own editorial slant, mm-hmm. but if you apply for a job, 
let's say at a right-leaning publication or television station or radio station or whatever it is, and you apply for the job and it's quite obvious during the interview that you're a raving lefty, you just don't get hired for the job. Right? They look right. at the stuff that you've written. They ask you some questions. If you're a yeah. raving lefty, you don't get hired. You only get hired if you sound like the kind of person right. that's going to fit into the culture. If you get in right. there and you start writing stuff that's outside of the editorial line, you will get You'll know. called. Called. <laughs> you know. You get called into the boss's office and like, uh, I think we need to change this. Uh, your sub-editors or your editors will rewrite your copy. Right. And then you either keep doing it and get fired or you protest and get fired or you protest and then quit mm-hmm. or you just keep writing within the, within the lines. Right. And keep your and, job. And uh, you... you Keep your job and your eyes up through the ranks. Right. And the and the editors know where it is and, and the guys running, the executives know where it is. They know where the line is because they get hired because they know where the line right. is or they've worked their way up because they know where the line is. So it's not. it doesn't have to be as overt. As saying no, you can't write that. It's just if you if you get the job in the first place, you've already been filtered. You've gone vetted. through the filtering yeah, mechanism absolutely. in the first place, and there's an ongoing yeah vetted exactly. But here we actually have a fucking News Corp journalist confirming what <laughs> Chomsky and these guys have been saying, and right. and I have been saying for decades. Right? It, it's quite obvious. Uh, so that's that's so they got more sophisticated, I guess, is what I'm saying over the years is with, mm-hmm. with their propaganda is they worked out how to do it in a way. You know, Chomsky, and I've, I'm sure I've said this on the show before, but Chomsky says it's 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 not propaganda, it's prop agenda. Ooh. There's an agenda that you have to write within. Here are right. the lines. You can write any story that goes between this line and that line. <laughs> You can't go outside of the lines. You have to colour within the lines, right? <laughs> so you can you can you can talk about the the in the US. You can talk about the Democratic candidates, and you can talk about the Republican candidates, and you can make fun of you know maybe a Greens candidate here or there or, or, right. or Bernie, but the the hard left socialist candidates um, up until recently. No, you couldn't talk about them. You wouldn't invite them in, onto your into your mm-hmm. televised presidential debates. Um, Dennis Kucinich, guys like that, couldn't you know? Major uh, independent, right? Uh, couldn't even get a presidential candidate for for many years. Couldn't even get an invite onto the. Uh, it actually, was locked out. Got got walked out by security. I seem to recall from oh one presidential God. debate. Jeez. Even though he was polling numbers as high as the rest of them, right, um, wasn't allowed to be part of the debate because he's you know not on the agenda. Yeah. He's not part of the agenda. That's the the allowable uh, limits of public discourse. Right. Well, I'm sure you saw a couple of months ago when um, two Fox either news people or hosts that had their own show, they did bring Bernie Sanders on there and they did have a live studio audience and there was a back and forth. 
And I didn't see the whole thing, but I saw enough of it where Bernie pretty much took the show away from them. And he's like, he's like, you know, show me, show me your hands of people who wanted to be able to, to have uh, universal health care. And the vast majority of these people, which were probably Fox, you know, because it was a Fox show, Fox audience shot their hand up. And the two hosts, it was a man and a woman. I'm sorry, I can't remember the name, but yes, she was blonde. Um, they were just stunned. They didn't know what to do with that. They didn't know how to spin it. And so you can lie to the people as much as you want. But when you've been beaten down so much and you just don't have many options and you don't have any savings or any money, if someone's going to offer you universal health care, Fuck politics. You know, you're going to want to be able to take care of yourself and your family. And I think that's something that conservatives and I don't mean that in a bad way, but I think that's that's some things that they forget from time to time. You know, I think now that you've got like uh, Alexandria Mm -hmm. Ocasio-Cortez and uh, Kamala Harris and um, the blonde uh, Ilan Omar Mm -hmm. and uh, women like that. Very far to the left yes. of your traditional discourse, but they're getting coverage. Well, at least um, some AOC is right. um, get, getting coverage uh, by the mainstream media of some of her positions. I'm shocked at how much coverage she's getting, and I think that really comes down to Bernie. Yes. And I think Bernie comes down to Occupy Wall Street. Yeah. I mean, Bernie's been around for a long time and has been arguing this for a long time. Um, don't get me wrong, but I mean, his presidential run a couple of years ago right. and the success of that was in large part uh, due to how the Occupy Wall Street movement mm-hmm. pushed the concept of the 1% and the 99% yeah. into public uh, discourse uh, visibility right yeah i yeah, i think yeah. the center of the conversation has moved to the left and i think bernie does and should get a lot of credit for that and and hopefully he's you know obviously he's not going to stop but the point is he can look back from you know three or four decades ago and go this is now the conversation we're having it took me a while but now this is something that i think people to a degree probably think it's just a matter of when we do something better than obamacare but if you remember the Occupy Wall mm-hmm. Street uh, coverage, the press coverage at the time, so I, there was a lot of criticism yeah. in the media, of course, about Occupy Wall Street. And one of the criticisms I read a lot, this is back in 2011, was that they didn't have any clear demands, right. they didn't have any clear leadership. leadership. Yeah. Uh, what do they want, these smelly, dirty hippies right. out on the streets? Right. Uh, they're just protesting, but there's no leadership. This isn't This isn't uh, a yeah. real thing. They're just Not a bunch of dirty it. hippies. Yeah. Uh, and, they, and, of course, they got, they got shut down by the elite because they were disrupting the economy, which was the point. Right. But you can draw a straight line, I think, between what Occupy Wall Street accomplished in terms of getting their agenda mm-hmm. uh, being talked about right. through to Bernie's presidential run or his run for the, the Democratic primaries right. uh, 20, 2015, 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't, didn't succeed, but then today now we have this new generation of Bernie's children AOC, right. Kamala Harris, etc., that are pushing uh, a very similar economic line, socioeconomic line to Bernie, mm-hmm. talking about social and economic inequality, uh, where they're winning, they're winning 
you know, power and yeah. and particularly in the democratic side of things, trying to be you know get rid of the entrenched rich white uh, leadership behind the Democratic Party and, and overthrow it. So, I, you know, I think the the Occupy Wall Street movement history will look back on it. I think twenty thirty years from now and say. Yeah, that's they they really had a huge impact, yeah. man. Despite yeah. despite all of the criticism of them at the time for being poorly organized, they got it done. Yeah. They they drove they drove the message uh, into public consciousness. And I think that's the difference between a grassroots grassroots movement versus a revolution is that it is gradual, it is generational to a degree. You do change minds um, slowly. You do get the the up and coming people who were teenagers you know, who are more open to new ideas. I I think that's how that works. It doesn't always have to go that way, but it's certainly a lot better than having a bloody revolution. And I think they will end up getting what they want. Like you were saying, it's just a matter of when. Um, But it has been a very slow, gradual thing, but its time seems to be about to come. And do you know who was behind Occupy Wall Street? Who kicked (sighs) it off? Oh, God. Oh, it's gone. Who? Because who is it? Who is it? It was Carly Larson, the publisher of Adbusters magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, they they promoted it. They came up with the idea of a occupation of Lower Manhattan, right? And they started advertising it in Adbusters magazine and on their wow. website. They had this poster of a ballet dancer on top of the Wall Street bull <laughs> statue. Um, I like I I had Kelly Larson on my uh, G'day World podcast many years ago. Nice. Um, he's a big inspir- big inspiration of mine, Kelly Larson. I think like mid two thousands, I had him on talking about ad busters and um, and a lot of the boycotts that they were wow. promoting and uh, cool. culture culture jamming and that kind of stuff. I've read a couple of his books and. Used to read the magazine a lot. Um, so there you go. Check that out. Callie Larson, L-A-S-N. Okay. I'll put a link to it in my show notes if you care. I do. So like you mentioned, they're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars. They're all over the place. and But because they were too over the top, they were too intense, and they did, they were, you know, and you, ha- you have to blame their marketers or whatever. I mean, to openly attack unions, which are trying to help people in this, this dire times. Come on, that's not very smart. They're attacking the New Deal that's trying to help people. Even if it's not perfect, the point is it's trying to help. And so that was not a big deal. And so even entities that this... um this uh, conservative business movement was trying to create wasn't doing much better um, either. So they were creating all these entities. They had all this um, presence out there. It just not only was it not getting the work done, but it was also backfiring to them. And so this attempt is not going to last too much longer, relatively speaking. Well, it did. They just got smarter at it. Now, the National Association for Manufacturers is still going strong, Mm-hmm. In a 2018 article by Business Insider, they were described as a behemoth in the U.S. Capitol, receiving unfettered access to the White House and top wow. lawmakers on Capitol Hill. Wow. In 2018, House Ways and Means Chairman Kevin Brady commented that passage of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act would not have happened without leadership from the National Association <laughs> of Manufacturers. Donald Trump addressed the NAM board in 2017. Wow. So NAM 
still going strong, still influencing uh, American legislation. Yeah. No, I, I was saying that, no, that's obviously still going on. I was talking about one of the aspects, one of the spinoffs of this attempt that we'll probably talk about later, the American Liberty League that also started in ni- 1934. Um, that's going to be something that's going to, to meet in a relatively early death just because they were trying to do too much too fast. And their message, again, just wasn't keeping pace with what the reality of what people saw on the streets day in and day out. All right, we'll get into that. Let's get into the Liberty League. Okay, yeah. So, so one of the entities working for the for NAM was the American uh, Liberty League, started in 1940, uh, 1934. And their their goal was to teach the necessity of respect for the rights of persons and property. And that's really nice if you have property. And the duty of the government to encourage and protect individual and group initiative and enterprise. And again, that all sounds nice on paper, but when you compare it to the um, the uh, the Great Depression that's going on and the struggling that everybody's going through right now, that's not going to be... These highfalutin ideas aren't going to mean a lot to the people that are struggling. So kind of what that message is, and to put it in today's terms, is that, look... The have-nots need to respect what we have, and if they work hard and play by the rules and save their money, and if one day they have money and they have land and they have property, we'll respect that as well, because that's what you do. So they're trying to push this message, but it's too vague. It's not in any way solving the problems of what these struggling people are going through, and so it doesn't really resonate as much as it was probably being hoped that it would. So it was created, the Liberty League, by a group of Democrats and a smaller number of Republicans in 1934, supposedly to try and push Mm -hmm. itself as being bipartisan. But uh, it was also funded to a large degree by the DuPont family. Uh, He had actually, uh, the uh, Irene DuPont had left the Republicans to support Al Smith in 1928 and then Roosevelt in 1932. But uh, then Mm -hmm. they weren't happy with the whole uh, uh, direction of the New Deal and were trying to uh, provide propaganda against it. Mm -hmm. Roosevelt uh, Roosevelt gave a speech that said... uh, (laughs) Let me see, I've got it here. He said the League seemed founded to uphold two of the Ten Commandments. Uh, The two particular tenets of this new organisation say you shall love God and then forget your (laughs) neighbour. So uh, that was his criticism of it. Jim Farley, who was the chairman of the Democratic Party, joked that it really ought to be called the American Cellophane League, First, because it's a DuPont <laughs> product, and second, you can see right through it. So, so they were thing. they were yeah. outed, yeah, outed by the Democrats. But basically, they and and so they started to decline after Roosevelt's re-election. But you know, they were um, they were the one of the first attempts to really propagandize free enterprise as being godly and the Mm -hmm. American way. Off the record, FDR once joked that the name of the god they worshipped was property. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's calling it like he sees it. Yeah. So, you know, we've talked on this before about uh, the business plot Mm -hmm. 
uh, and Smedley Butler. I know we've touched on this a number of times, in, including <laughs> recently, um, but Major, uh, Marine Corps Major General Smedley Butler claimed, and he, again, I think he was the, the, the most highly decorated American soldier yes. ever. He alleged that in no- November 1934, a bond salesman named Gerald Maguire told him that leaders of the American Liberty League wanted Butler to lead 500,000 veterans in a coup to overthrow Franklin Roosevelt. Oh God. Now, Butler and Maguire weren't in the league, mm-hmm. uh, and the league later rejected the allegations. Butler admitted he was never approached by any league official directly that he got the story from Maguire, who also wasn't involved in the league. Um, Maguire, there was later congressional hearings on this, and Maguire told Congress there was no such plot, and historians have dismissed the whole thing. But, uh, you know, Butler was... uh, pretty reasonable guy he, he wrote that classic book um talking about how war is right. um, yes. all about money always mm-hmm. has been war is a racket that's oh, yeah. the name of the book i read it many years ago so one of our listeners sent me a, a paperback copy of it i can't remember who but thank you if you're listening um because it prompted me to reread it classic book um basically him again uh, Smedley Darlington Butler, a.k.a. Old Gimlet Eye, a.k.a. The Fighting Quaker, a.k.a. Old Duckboard, uh, the highest rank, uh, the most decorated Marine in U.S. history he was, mm. uh, participated in military actions in the Philippines, China, Central America and the Caribbean and France in World War One. Ended up as a major critic of U.S. wars, and uh, like this guy, yeah. fairly credible, fairly credible uh, guy when it comes to military affairs, and he said that he was approached. Everyone denied it later, but I, yeah. I tend to believe him, that they wanted him to overthrow FDR, and if he had been Makes someone else, yeah. maybe you would have had yeah. a revolution, like mm-hmm. you were talking about before. But it would have been a it would have been a uh, more of a fascist overthrow. It would have been a, a right. corporate overthrow Jeez. of the U.S. government. Corporations running the country. Well, hell, they already do anyway. It's just behind the scenes. Yes, they got they got more sophisticated with it. So, what I want to talk about next, and we may be running out of time, uh, so we'll get into it in the next episode, is the role of religion in the Red Scares, Mm -hmm. because as I said before, the American Liberty League started to associate capitalism with uh, religion, Uh, that it was uh, what God wants, (laughs) even though all of the early Christians were socialists, uh, according to the Bible, (laughs) somehow God God loves capitalism. And uh, that was something that the churches ended up getting behind in the U.S., and we'll get into that in the next episode. Can't wait. You don't have to. We're doing it in, like, two minutes from now. I'm going to have a drink, and then we're going to pick it up. So I don't know. An iron curtain has descended.
extending across the continent. 